Hello, this is Mark from VEDA, and welcome to the VEDA Predictions Podcast, where we break down what's happening in Washington for investors and provide our predictions for what's coming next. Today's episode is titled The Notorious RBG, and today is Tuesday, September 29th. As you likely know, VEDA is a team of researchers who dig into policy issues and how they will affect financial markets. We have three main verticals, macroeconomic policy, healthcare, and tech policy. Identifying opportunities, mitigating risk, or just generally making our clients smarter. That's what we do at VEDA. In this episode, I'm joined by Spencer Perlman, VEDA's Director of Healthcare Policy, and we're talking about the Supreme Court and the passing of Justice Ginsburg on September 18th. Almost immediately upon her death, Senate Republicans announced they would rush to fill the seat prior to the November 3rd election. On September 27th, President Trump nominated conservative judge Amy Coney Barrett of Indiana to replace the liberal Ginsburg. If Judge Coney Barrett is confirmed by the Senate, conservatives will hold a 6-3 majority on the Supreme Court, which could have broad implications for a range of controversial issues. From a healthcare perspective, the most immediate impact relates to the court case known as California versus Texas, which is about the constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act, also known as the ACA, also known as Obamacare. The court is scheduled to hear oral arguments on November 10th and is likely to render a decision in the first half of 2021. If the newly appointed conservative court rules for the plaintiffs, it is possible that the entire ACA could be invalidated with major implications for millions of Americans as well as the stock market. Spencer, what's this case really about and what's being debated before the court? Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, I think you know, what this is really about at the end of the day is the so-called individual mandate in the Affordable Care Act, whether or not it's constitutional and whether or not uh, if it's unconstitutional, it requires the Supreme Court to invalidate the entire Affordable Care Act. So that's the short answer. Um, I think it's really important to kind of dig into the history here a little bit. And if you'll just indulge me, kind of do a little bit of a history here of the ACA and what's happened in the last 10 years or so. So if we go back to 2010, when the Affordable Care Act was signed into law, what people don't really realize is that the ACA is this incredibly complex piece of legislation or law, actually, that touches every aspect of the American healthcare system. It made major changes to the commercial health insurance market in the United States. It expanded Medicaid coverage for the poor to childless adults who previously had not had access. It made major changes to the Medicare program for the elderly, it revised the nation's public health infrastructure. It reformed the programs that, that uh, train healthcare professionals. Uh, it made significant improvements to the different uh, portions of the US code that address waste, fraud, and abuse. Uh, it allowed for the FDA for the first time ever to approve generic versions of biotech drugs known as biosimilars. It made major changes to the US tax code, and it completely reformed the Indian Health Service that provides coverage to Native Americans. So this is a massive piece of legislation, a huge law that made major changes across the entire landscape of the US healthcare system. Now, the portion of the ACA that's usually thought of as Obamacare are actually those changes to the commercial health insurance market that I mentioned at the beginning. And the major changes there was basically they created, Congress created a three-legged stool to provide coverage to millions of Americans who didn't have it before. And that three-legged stool, the first leg, is the so-called individual mandate. And this is actually a command by Congress that everyone in America has to have health care coverage. Uh, 
they are required to either get coverage through Medicare or Medicaid or to purchase a commercial plan. And if you don't purchase that plan, you can be fined through the U.S. tax code. And it's important to keep that in mind that this is through the tax code. The second and third legs of the stool relate to the health insurance industry. And basically what Congress is saying is, okay, we're going to require everyone to purchase coverage, but now we need to set new rules for the health insurance industry to ensure that everybody can actually get that coverage. So the second leg of the stool is called guaranteed issue. And this literally means that anyone who wants coverage from a commercial insurer has to get that coverage. You cannot be denied. And then the third leg of the stool is called community rating. And what community rating means is that you cannot be charged more for coverage based upon your health status. So this is the really critical thing that a lot of people think about when they think of the ACA, that you cannot be excluded from coverage if you have a pre-existing healthcare condition. So for example, if you have high blood pressure, a commercial insurer can't say, well, we're going to cover every portion of you except for anything related to high blood pressure. So those are the three legs of the stool. You have guaranteed issue, you have community rating, and you have the individual mandate. Now, if we fast forward a little bit to 2012, after the law had been put into effect, the individual mandate was extremely controversial. And there was a case before the Supreme Court called NFIB v. Sebelius that was debating the constitutionality of the individual mandate. And in a really controversial ruling, the Supreme Court's Chief Justice, John Roberts, ruled that the mandate is unconstitutional as understood under the Commerce Clause of the Constitution, which allows Congress to regulate interstate commerce. But, he said, because the fine is paid through the tax code, the individual mandate is best understood as a tax, and it's therefore constitutional under Congress's taxing authority. So let's keep that in mind for right now, that it's constitutional as a tax. Fast forward to 2017. In 2017, the Republican Congress and Donald Trump took the penalty for the individual mandate down to $0. So the mandate itself still exists. You and I are still required to buy health insurance, but if we violate that law, the penalty is paying exactly $0. Now, we could do an entire other podcast on why they chose to do it that way. That has largely to do with uh, parliamentary procedure in the U.S. Senate. But the penalty was brought to $0. And what that meant then is that in 2018, Texas, the state of Texas, excuse me, and a handful of plaintiffs sued to argue that the entire ACA is now invalidated. And their argument goes in this way. It says that because the individual mandate penalty is now $0, it can no longer be considered a tax because common law requires that a tax has to produce revenue. And if there's no penalties paid, there's no revenue, therefore it's not a tax. If it's not a tax, and the Supreme Court said in 2012 that it's not constitutional under the Commerce Clause, therefore the individual mandate is now unconstitutional. And they further argued that because the individual mandate is explicitly tied by the Affordable Care Act to the other two legs of the stool in the commercial market of guaranteed issue and community rating, those provisions also have to be unconstitutional. And since the remaining portions of the ACA, they argue, are essentially a rump law that Congress would have never passed on their own, the entire ACA has to be invalidated. So that's what it comes down to. The individual mandate is unconstitutional, therefore the entire ACA is unconstitutional. So let me jump in for just a second, Spencer. I mean, like, why not? Could the, what's stopping the administration from making that tax or penalty a dollar? Well, they could, and that's one of the reasons why this case is, quite frankly, a little bit bogus. Um, and that's not just me saying this. This is uh, dozens of conservative uh, preeminent legal scholars. 
if Congress were to create the penalty, recreate the penalty and establish it at one penny, it would mitigate this entire thing because then it would be producing revenue and the entire uh, argument from Texas and the plaintiffs would completely fall by the wayside. Got it. So look, I mean, at the end of the day here, I mean, there's been a, this court, this specific, specific court case has been going on since early 2018. What's happened in the lower courts? Right. So the case was originally filed in a district, a federal district in Texas that uh, wound up with a case in front of a judge named Reed O'Connor. And it's a really interesting thing that, again, would probably lend itself to an entirely different podcast. But Reed O'Connor is sort of this colorful character who has outside the mainstream views. But he also happens to be in a district where uh, conservatives are able to essentially steer cases to his docket. The case went to Reed O'Connor, and not surprisingly, Judge O'Connor ruled that, I mean, he bought the Texas uh, argument hook, line, and sinker, and basically said, yep, that's right, the individual mandate is now unconstitutional, uh, the other three legs of the stool are unconstitutional, and the entire ACA has to be invalidated. Now, that was in late 2018. He, he put a stay on his order, which means that it's, it's basically a pause. It didn't go into effect. And the case was not surprisingly appealed to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals in New Orleans, Louisiana. Now, the Fifth Circuit is known as the most conservative circuit out of all nine circuits in the United States. It just so happens to have a lot of conservative judges. And the case was heard before a three-judge panel that was two Republican-appointed judges and one Democratic-appointed judge. And not surprisingly, the Fifth Circuit ruled in a two-to-one decision that portions of the ACA are indeed unconstitutional. So the Fifth Circuit, the majority said, the individual mandate is unconstitutional, but they then said that Judge O'Connor's ruling on the rest of the ACA went too far and that they basically remanded or uh, returned the case back to Judge O'Connor to reconsider his decision on what is allowable and what is not allowable through a little bit more of a nuanced analysis. So the Fifth Circuit kind of punted. Rather than deciding on their own what could stand and what has to fall, they, they punted it back to Reed O'Connor. Now, at this point, the defendants in the case, which ironically enough is the state of California and other states and not the Trump administration, because the Trump administration has refused to defend this case, which is highly unusual. The federal government usually defends the federal government. California and the other states asked the Supreme Court to weigh in, and the Supreme Court said that they would, and oral arguments, as you mentioned, are set for November the 10th. Got it. So... Let's fast forward here. I mean, the Democrats' political ads for the last week and change or so about how the Coney Barrett confirmation is really about the demise of the ACA. So at the end of the day here in the first half of 2021, do you believe that the court's going to invalidate the entire ACA? Uh, in a word, no. No. I think there's essentially a 0% chance that the entirety of the ACA is overturned. And the reasoning here has to do with the legal background of this case. And, and again, you know, I'm not an attorney, I'm not a constitutional scholar, but if you read preeminent conservative legal scholars, they basically believe, as I mentioned before, that the Texas case is essentially bogus. And it's bogus for three different reasons that are based upon what is known as standing and severability. So standing is the idea that not anybody can just bring a case. I mean, you can sue anybody, obviously, but the courts are only going to hear a case if there's an actual injury that takes place. If there's no injury, then there's no, there's no dispute and there's no case. In this instance, 
because the penalty is $0 for violating the individual mandate, the, there, there is no injury. I mean, the, the penalty is nothing. It's non-existent. If you fail to buy health insurance, nothing happens. So therefore, based on the long-standing precedent of standing, the plaintiffs don't even have the right to bring this case in the first place. That's number one. Number two is that even if you believe the plaintiffs have standing, even if you believe, like Texas argues, that these are just unbelievably patriotic citizens who believe that they can't break a law even if there's no penalty and they have to buy health insurance that they don't want, there is nothing that would indicate that the individual mandate suddenly became unconstitutional just because the penalty was brought to zero dollars. In other words, yes, it's true it doesn't produce revenue, but as you pointed out, if we increase the penalty to one cent, it's, it, it goes back into place. And so there, there is a, an argument that if the penalty were raised to some astronomical level that was higher than the cost of health insurance, that's a massive burden and probably unconstitutional. But bringing the penalty down to zero dollars means there's no burden. That's the second thing. The third has to do with severability. And so what that basically is, is it's, we're saying, if you believe that the plaintiffs have standing, and if you believe the individual mandate is unconstitutional, it doesn't matter because that's the only portion of the ACA that should fall. So severability is the doctrine where you're able to essentially take a really complex piece of legislation or law, and if one portion of it is unconstitutional, you can literally separate or sever it from the rest of the law, and the rest of the law can stand. This is not a case where there's this abstract discussion of, geez, what would Congress do or what would happen if the individual mandate wasn't validated? We're living it right now. The individual mandate has been essentially ineffectual since 2017 when the penalty was brought to zero dollars. Congress did that on their own. The 2017 Congress got rid of the individual mandate and didn't change the rest of the ACA. So based on the severability doctrine, even if the individual mandate is unconstitutional, the rest of the law should stay in effect. Now, there, there is some risk here. Obviously, if this case had nothing to do with the Affordable Care Act, and there were no politics involved in that, most conservative scholars believe that the Supreme Court would do away with this case by 7 to 2, 8 to 1, 9 to nothing. But obviously, the politics of the ACA do play a role. And so as a result of that, there is some residual risk now with uh, Justice Ginsburg's death that the individual mandate could be invalidated, and it may bring down those commercial market reforms like the guaranteed issue and community rating provisions, potentially. But I think that's probably the worst case scenario that could arise from this case. So let's assume that that happens, right? And the, cal the court invalidates the individual mandate, the guaranteed issue, and the community ratings provisions. Um, what's the ultimate impact on the healthcare system? Well, immediately there'd probably be no impact uh, other than sentiment because the court would very likely put in a stay of approximately six months or so to give Congress some time to respond to prevent immediate disruption. So immediately nothing. But let's assume that that is the case, that at the end of the day, there, there is a, a five-member uh, conservative majority that invalidates the guaranteed issue, community rating, and individual mandate. And Congress does nothing to intervene. The impact is going to be variable, but it should be relatively limited. And the reason for that, there's a couple of reasons there. First of all, I think that the Medicaid expansion will stay in effect no matter what. And that's critically important to the healthcare system, because if you look at the benefit that both managed care and especially hospitals got from the Affordable Care Act, it was almost entirely from the Medicaid expansion. There's a huge financial boon from that. The exchanges never really, uh, the, or the changes to the commercial market never really provided a huge boost 
There are some companies with exposure, um, but for the most part, they never got a huge boost from the exchanges and the individual market and those reforms. So if that went away, uh, they, there shouldn't be a major impact. On top of that, in the large group and self-insured markets, which is health insurance and the commercial market that you get through an employer, through a large employer, which is how about two-thirds of people in the commercial market get their health insurance, there are laws that have been in effect since before the ACA that would still exist even if the portions of the ACA went away. And so in the large group market, you would still have these protections against medical underwriting and varying premiums based upon health status. So you shouldn't have huge disruption there. And then on top of that, health insurance is regulated at the federal level and also at the state level. And most states have brought their laws into alignment with the ACA in the last 10 years. So if you look at sort of the totality of things, yes, there's gonna be disruption. Yes, there will be certain people probably those who are, let's say, 45 to 64, or who have pre-existing conditions, or who have chronic illnesses, who would either be excluded from or priced out of the commercial market. And there would be an uptick in the uninsured rate of, you know, probably as many as 10 million people. But realistically, from an impact on industry, it should be relatively mitigated, all things considered. Got it. Look, I mean, at the end of the day, it sounds like what you view as the worst case scenario isn't that bad for these businesses. But managed care stocks, hospital stocks got hit pretty hard on Judge Ginsburg's death. Is is it just time that's needed to educate investors here? I think so. I mean, yeah, you're right. I mean, if you look at the sell-off in managed care and hospitals, the market's essentially sort of pricing in an assumption that the ACA is dead. Uh, you know, some of these names took 20% hits. Um, and realistically, if you look at what the most likely worst case scenario is, the most likely worst case scenario is that there is disruption in the individual and small group markets in the commercial market, but that the rest of the ACA stays in place. And so, yes, there's disruption. Yes, it's negative. But I think that the, the sell-off has definitely been overdone. And I think even beyond that, I think there's just sort of this innate fear right now that an Amy Connie Barrett's going to come in and there's a six conservative majority, six to three conservative majority on the Supreme Court and the ACA is in peril. Then there's just sort of this, you know, look, healthcare is too hot right now. I'm going to get out because I, I just, I can't handle the heat right now. And, and I understand that. That makes sense. But if you kind of think about where this is likely going to go, if you think about the case itself, the, the details of the case, and the fact that there, there is a very decent likelihood here that the Supreme Court could surprise everybody, and even with six, six conservative justices, could rule in a way that results in the status quo being maintained. I think people are, are discounting that, and because what they're thinking is, okay, there's only three liberal justices left and the chief justice, and that's only four votes. But Justice Brett Kavanaugh, Justice Clarence Thomas, and Justice Neil Gorsuch, all of them are historically sticklers on both standing and severability. And so as a result of that, there's a very decent likelihood that you could have a five to four or six to three majority that would rule that, fine, okay, maybe maybe the, the plaintiffs do have standing. Maybe the individual mandate uh, is unconstitutional. But the severability issue is a cornerstone of conservative legal doctrine. And, and I think there's a, a, you know, a real possibility the street has more or less discounted that this could be resolved in a way that results in the status quo being maintained. All right, now it's time for the breakdown. Now it's time for a breakdown. Spence, we get asked uh, all the time by our clients about our odds on a host of topics. So we like to end each podcast with a pretty rapid fire list of questions. 
Some of these may be a little bit off topic, but I think they're relative to any healthcare landscape discussion. Um, and the outcomes will, will drive markets. Some of uh, these things may even, some of these questions may even tease some of our future podcast topics. So I'm going to ask you some questions and give me your odds for each scenario and a brief explanation of the logic behind that, those odds. Here we go. You ready? I'm ready. Odds of a public option being implemented in the next administration. Uh, I'm going to hedge a little bit here, and it depends on what you're talking about. So if you're talking about a public option that is run directly by CMS, that is available throughout the entire commercial market, and that pays Medicare rates, I'd say 5%, maybe. Just not happening. Too much pain to hospitals, not enough votes in the Senate. If you're talking about a less aggressive form of a public option that's more like Medicare Advantage, where it's actually run by managed care companies on behalf of the government, and it's available only in the individual market, so about 10 million people can access it, and it's paying rates at a roughly commercial rates, I'd say 40%. Perfect. What about odds of a Medicare buy-in, say over 60, being implemented in the same period, time period over the next administration? I'd say probably 30 to 35%. Uh, this is a tough one again. And, I, and this really comes back to the question about the public option as well. The, the difficulty is that whether you're talking about a public option or Medicare buy-in, it's really predicated on shifting patients from commercial coverage to public coverage. And the problem there is that public coverage pays hospitals and other providers way less than commercial coverage. So you're talking about substantial financial pain for hospitals that are really critically important in every congressional district and state. So I think it's 30, 35% chance at most. Got it. And here's the big one. Odds of Medicare for all being implemented in the next decade. The next decade. Wow. That, that one I was not expecting. Um, well, let me put it this way. Odds of it happening in the next four years are uh, 0%. And if I could say negative something percent, I would. Uh, <laughs> next decade... Oh, man, the only way that's going to happen is if Democrats just get a massive majority in the House and the Senate, and there is just huge disruption in the commercial market that blows up the entire U.S. healthcare system. Five percent, maybe. I could see a let me let me, let me hedge again a little bit a little bit here. I could see a Medicare advantage for all, meaning that you have a system where the federal government is essentially guaranteeing coverage to everybody. And they're paying for people to get coverage through managed care companies that basically act as large public utilities and operate the healthcare system on, the, on behalf of the federal government. That's at least theoretically reasonable and could potentially be a meeting of the minds between Republicans and Democrats. But Medicare for All, as it's been outlined by Bernie Sanders, um, even over the next decade, 5% at most. Right. A big one for our credit clients has been the issue of surprise medical billing legislation. Do we have a chance of SMB legislation passing in 2020? In 2020, I think the odds are dwindling pretty quickly. Um, any trust that may have existed has basically evaporated since RBG's death. Um, so, uh, you know, it, pretty small chances of something happening in 2020. I do think that surprise medical billing, though, it's a, it's a question of when and not if. So, more than likely, this gets kicked into 2021, but I would say I'd go into 2021. Let's assume nothing happens in 2020. I would go into 2021 with about 35% odds, but I'd calibrate that based upon 
uh, in particular how Speaker Pelosi addresses this issue. So she's been very cagey on this issue at this point. Um, if she engages and wants it to happen, I, I think it would happen. Under both administrations, uh, we, four more years of Trump or a Biden win on November 3rd, uh, odds of meaningful drug pricing legislation happening in the next four years? I think pretty good. I actually think that pharma is probably the most exposed subsector of healthcare. Um, look, there there is general agreement that something should be done on drug pricing. I think, you know, something that relates to the government directly negotiating the prices of all drugs is pretty unlikely. There just are not votes for that. But something like inflation caps uh, in Medicare um, and allowing the government to play some role in addressing the value of very expensive drugs, I'd say over the next four years, 55, 60% that we could see meaningful drug pricing reform. Last one. Give me your odds of having an approved vaccine prior to the election. <laughs> uh, well, what do you mean by approved? Do you mean emergency use authorization or do you mean actually approved by the FDA? Uh, I, I mean, I mean, Trump being able to stand up prior to the election saying there is an approved vaccine by the FDA. Uh, him saying that 100 <laughs> percent. It being true. 25 percent. Thanks, Spencer. You, you are the man. Um, this has been Mark for the Vader Predictions podcast. Thanks to all our listeners. Speak to you all again soon. Mm -hmm.